There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends. But who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Nada Youssef. We are talking about women's primary care. Primary care women's health provides ongoing support and education that our female patients need in order to manage changes that occur, that occur throughout their lives. And our featured expert for this topic today is Director of Primary Care Women's Health, Dr. Laura Lepold. And before we get started, please remember this is for informational purposes only and not intended to replace your own physician's advice. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Sure. If you want to just introduce yourself to our viewers. Sure. I'm Dr. Laura Lippold. I'm a family medicine trained physician and I completed a fellowship in women's health and I'm director of a program here at the Cleveland Clinic called Primary Care Women's Health. And we're a network of primary care physicians who really have a special interest and competency in providing health care for women across the ages. Great. Excellent. Okay. So I want to kind of talk about first um, the difference um, in risk factors and symptoms in women and men and how that plays a role in a woman seeing a primary care physician or a woman's health specialist, you know, the, the difference in the two and why we should be seeing a woman's health primary okay. care physician. So to start off with question A, yes. so we know that women are biologically different than men for a lot of different reasons. They have different hormones, they have different body makeup, they have different fat composition, they have different enzyme levels. For all of these women, for all these differences, there can be some differences in terms of how diseases impact women versus men, mm -hmm. how they present, what symptoms they may have, uh, what their prognosis may be, and what treatments may be more specific or better tailored for them. Sure. So then part B, um, I think talking a little bit more about when it's appropriate to yes. see a primary care woman's health physician. Right. Um, so we um, so we can take care of really a broad spectrum of women's health needs. Um, we also can provide gynecological care, typically the non-specialized, non-obstetrical care for women. Uh -huh. um, so for example, if a female has um, some type of GYN malignancy, uh, meaning a cancer, or if they're having complicated gynecological issues, they may need to see a specialist in GYN, or if they're pregnant, um, that would not be appropriate or within our scope of care that we do provide. But for example, we can care for a lot of things like osteoporosis, managing menopause, contraception, screening, taking yeah. care of their diabetes, addressing their depression, addressing their sleep concerns. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, a, a wide array of things. Mm -hmm. So to me as a patient, what are the benefits of having a primary care woman's health physician? So the real benefit's going to be one-stop shopping. So for women who really like to receive their care in one place with one provider, um, that's really going to be the real benefit of that altogether. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. It could be a family thing too mm -hmm. if you have daughters, Absolutely, correct? absolutely. Okay. And so for those of us, especially family medicine physicians, um, who do provide primary care women's health scope as services, um, we have the benefit of seeing multiple generations of women in the same family. Now, do you get to collaborate with other women's health specialists mm -hmm. with, with your patients as well? Sure, and especially here at the Cleveland Clinic, we have the benefit of having a lot of um, specialists and subspecialists in women's health. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if we have, if we identify a patient of ours who could maybe benefit from 
preventive women's health cardiology, we can make that referral. We have a patient who can maybe benefit from seeing somebody in endocrinology who has a specialized women's health care need, we can do that. And we certainly collaborate very closely with our OBGYN colleagues as well. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, now, do you offer yearly pap exams as well? Um, so we do offer annual preventive care for women. Okay. Um, and certainly with our guidelines, it may not necessarily require an annual pap test, um, but that is one um, important service that we can provide. Um, and I think another benefit of seeing a primary care women's health provider is that you're really going to minimize overlapping visits or preventive care. Mm -hmm. So instead of seeing both your OBGYN and your primary care doctor for preventive care needs, you can see just one doctor once a year. Oh, that would be excellent. really pretty beneficial. Now, can you talk about those important vaccines um, and screenings that women need and maybe may not be aware of? Sure. Okay. Um, so uh, when we think about um, some important screenings, we do obviously think about things like cervical cancer screening. Mm -hmm. um, and often we see some, um, at times, confusing changes as our, as our understanding of risk for cervical cancer evolves. So those guidelines can change. And so sometimes it can be difficult to keep up with that. Mm -hmm. um, so again, touching base with a primary care physician um, and seeing them annually to see if you need to have that PAP or you need to have that HPV test um, that year or not. Um, breast cancer screening is also a very important thing. And again, our guidelines have been evolving with that one too as well. Um, it's also very important to keep up to date with your other screenings. Um, so screening for cardiovascular risk factors, screening for diabetes is also really important. Great. I think I didn't touch on the vaccines. Um, yeah, go ahead. So in terms of the vaccines, important to remember that you know, clearly vaccines, vaccines are important for children as they are for adults. Uh, there are not too many gender differences as far as our vaccine recommendations, just a subtle difference with the upper age of limit with the HPV vaccine, but outside of that, really no significant gender differences as far as the recommendations, but still important to keep up on them. Okay, speaking of children, how young are you seeing those patients? Yeah, so as a family medicine provider, I have the benefit of seeing um, my patients as young as newborns. So we call, wow. yeah, we call womb to tomb wow. scope of services that we do provide. Um, so that's wonderful. Um, and then uh, internal medicine primary care physicians, um, they may be able to see women as young as about 16 years of age. Okay, that's excellent. So as a female patient, how do I know if primary care women's health specialist is right for me? And when do you think it's appropriate to go to a specialized physician? Okay, that, and that's a, yeah, that's a really good question. So the way I like to think about this is ultimately we want women to see the right provider at the right time in their mm -hmm. life. So if they are of childbearing age and they are, you know, trying to become pregnant and, you know, or maybe in between pregnancies thinking about having another child, that might be the time that they're going to be following with their obstetrician. Mm -hmm. um, or if they have any specialized GYN needs, they're going to be following with their gynecologist. Mm -hmm. But if they're beyond childbearing and they do not have any specialized GYN needs, so maybe at the age of 45 and older, that might be a good time to really stick with your primary care woman's health provider for your annual preventive care mm -hmm. and addressing all of your other medical needs okay, as well. Great. Now, are there any female patients that you just could not see, you would not see um, in your practice? No, we're primary care providers, so we see everybody. <laughs> everybody. We don't turn anybody away. Okay, right. great. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay, so I have a list of issues, and I'm a female patient, so I want you to clarify to me in the audience and okay, see if sure. I should be seen by you or go to a different specialist, and then feel free to elaborate. Okay, sure. Um, let's talk about menopause, because mm -hmm. there's, I know there's pre-menopause, mm -hmm. there's post-menopause, 
and, and so do, you, do we see you for that? Sure, and so that's, that will be um, appropriate for a primary care women's health provider. Um, I will say that not all primary care physicians may feel as comfortable addressing some of these women's health issues. Um, and so there may be times that a primary care physician may refer you on to a women's health specialist. Okay. Um, but for those of us who do feel more comfortable who are primary care women's health providers, uh, menopause is a very common thing that we can help women kind of help guide them through and, and help them manage that. Okay, mm -hmm. excellent. How about uh, vaginal pain or bleeding? Mm -hmm. So um, often we can um, do the initial evaluation and often can do the initial workup for maybe some abnormal bleeding or pain. Mm -hmm. um, but then um, quite often too as well, we may need to rely on our GYN specialists for further evaluation and treatment. Okay, so you'd be able to see them do the initial screenings Correct. and then be able to, to refer, to refer to them, them on. Correct. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, osteoporosis? So osteoporosis is another medical uh, condition in women that we uh, very comfortably can treat as well, um, primary care women's health providers it is. Um, and sometimes there may be more medically complex patients with osteoporosis where we may need to refer them on to our bone specialist. Okay, mm -hmm. great. And what about yeast infections? So that's a very common condition that we can treat. Okay, so Absolutely. you can, you can take care of that one. And other commonly vaginal infections as well. What mm -hmm. about like STDs or mm -hmm. anything And like that's that. something that we can appropriately treat as well, correct? Mm -hmm. Excellent, excellent. Um, how about cancer, like ovarian cancer? Yeah, so that would need to be in the hands of a GYN oncologist. Okay, Unfortunately, so that would be with the Right, and here at the Cleveland Clinic, we've got really a great team of GYN oncologists that we collaborate with. Excellent. Mm -hmm. um, and then with sleep, mm -hmm. I know that we do sleep studies and there's all mm -hmm. kinds of extensive stuff that yeah. we do, um, but would you see initially for someone that's having sleep issues, sleep apnea? Sure, and I think primary care physicians are well positioned to identify sleep disorders and to really manage the complexities around that too as well. That's so. excellent, mm -hmm. great. Um, and then uh, I have hypertension. So hypertension is our bread and butter. <laughs> <laughs> so by all means, I think hypertension is a really important condition that we can monitor and that we can treat. Um, so uh, often some of the primary care women's health providers may also be following uh, women who are thinking about getting pregnant so they can provide preconceptual care for women who are on um, medications for certain chronic conditions like hypertension. And so they can maybe assess, well, maybe this is a medication that would not be appropriate if you're mm -hmm. trying to get pregnant, so let's make that switch before you do try to come get pregnant. And then once they do become pregnant, they will be in the hands of an obstetrician, likely a high-risk obstetrician, and then during the postpartum period, and they're gonna come right back to us too as okay. well. So we're going to follow them during that spectrum. Excellent, mm -hmm. excellent. So speaking of following uh, you know, your, your patients, adolescent care, mm -hmm. you know, transitioning um, a girl to adulthood, mm -hmm. is this something that you would be seeing for? Absolutely, and that's uh, another, um, that's what I really see as um, really gratifying mm -hmm. um, part of my care um, when we do see younger women as they're starting to become more independent and starting to take more responsibility for their health care and they're transitioning from adolescence to adulthood, um, it's, really, uh, it's, it's a really great opportunity to help guide them through that. Great. Uh, so we often, as family medicine physicians, we help them transition to that. Now, if it's a pediatrician that they're following with, adolescence is a very common time where they're going to start to talk to them about transitioning to an adult care provider. 
So we often do see that they are making that transition to an adult care provider, whether it be a family medicine provider or an internal medicine provider. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say I drop my PCP, my primary care physician, and I'm coming to a women's health uh, primary care. Mm -hmm. um, what, what's different? What is the biggest difference? What's going to be my initial appointment that's maybe different than a, you know internal medicine physician? Um, you know, I, I think uh, when I think about the service that I provide women, um, I do provide a very comprehensive preventive care visit. Okay. Uh, so in addition to approaching the general prevention um, screenings, looking at blood pressure, looking at lipids, looking at glucose, uh, I will do a bone health assessment. I will assess their breast cancer risk. I will be able to very carefully look at their history of cervical cancer screening mm -hmm. and really develop an appropriate tailored plan based on that. Um, I often provide a lot of education around the natural transition from premenopause to perimenopause to postmenopausal time period. And I can provide a lot of counseling around that too as well. And I can provide contraceptive services if needed to as well. Oh, great. And mm -hmm. you mentioned counseling as well? Mm-hmm. Oh, Correct. so there's counseling also in this service? Sure, absolutely. Because oh, I'm thinking adolescent care, care mm -hmm. and all that definitely needs some counseling mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I'm getting some live questions, so I'm mm -hmm. going to uh, switch off here. I have a Randy. Um, pap smear, how often for women yeah. over 60 should have it? Okay, so the current recommendations are for women who have not had any precancer conditions of the cervix or cancer of the cervix. Okay. Um, and if they're between the age of 30 and 65, okay. our preferred screening is co-testing. And that's a PAP with HPV, and that's to be done every five years as long as things are normal. You do have the option for doing a PAP by itself without the HPV every three years. Okay. Now, women after the age of 65 can safely exit from screening Again, as long as they've had routine, normal screens before then, and they haven't been treated for any cervical precancer or cancer. Okay. Now, when you say co-testing, that's that's you're saying that's a Pap with HPV. HPV, correct, correct. Okay, let's talk about HPV okay. screening because sure. I feel like I'm I'm hearing a lot about it. I'm seeing a lot of sure. more commercials. Can we talk a, a little bit about that? Um, are there misconceptions? Should every woman go for her HPV screening? How and how young should a woman get her HPV test? So uh, as I mentioned, um, HPV as part of a cervical cancer screening strategy um, should not be initiated before the age of 30 as it stands with okay. our current recommendations. Sure, sure. Um, I think that's a great point because it's not that uncommon when we're doing the screening where HPV testing may turn up positive. Hmm. I think it's, I always counsel my patients, remind them that HPV, human papillomavirus uh, of the cervix, is actually very common. We know that eight out of 10 women have been exposed to HPV. Yeah. And the natural history of it, we learned a lot about that over the past couple of decades, is that when they're exposed, it does take your body's immune system probably about one or two years to actually put that virus in check. Wow. And so it really puts it into remission. While it's there, we're just being very careful to make sure that it's not really causing any problems with the cells of the cervix as we can detect with the pap test. 
Okay, now if I'm 30 and over and I'm getting uh, my pap exam, should I mention it to my physician or is this something that's just like a, a part of, of screening? Yeah, it, you know, it is really accepted as a national standard to mm -hmm. incorporate that with the pap. Okay. Again, as I said, every five years, but you sure. certainly, again, want to probably be fully informed and know what tests are being done. Right. And in, in insurance companies, we haven't really had much pushback at all. So usually insurance companies are pretty on board with that altogether. Yeah. Okay. Um, there may be uh, government payers may have uh, maybe a little bit more stringent sometimes, um, but for the most part, we're not getting too much pushback. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. All right, on to the next question. Uh, Kimberly, is osteoporosis more common in women? Uh, yes, osteoporosis is much more common in women. It does occur in men. Mm -hmm. um, and they have different risk factors. So for okay. women, the strongest risk factor is going to be being postmenopausal. And that's mm -hmm. because we have lower estrogen levels when we're done with our periods, and the estrogen naturally helps to support the bones. Okay. And clearly men don't have that. However, men can have low testosterone conditions, which can cause which can osteoporosis cause too as well. Um, but clearly, because every female ultimately goes through menopause, we clearly see a lot more osteoporosis. Now menopause, I want to kind of touch on that. Sure. Um, not knowing, because every woman is different with, with the symptoms when it comes to menopause. What should um, women look for? What kind of symptoms should we be on the lookout for to be like, you know, I should see someone for, for this mm -hmm. versus I'm just going, you know, through age? Sure, sure. Um, that's a really great question. So I, I think a lot of women do understand and know that hot flashes are a very common part of the menopausal transition and being postmenopausal. Sure. They can be they can be very severe at times and they can really impact quality of life. Mm -hmm. um, and I think s women sometimes feel like, well, this is just a natural process, I just need to live through it. Um, I think a lot of women may not realize that very effective treatment, i.e. hormone therapy, is a that most women are going to be a candidate for that if they are within five or 10 years of menopause. Mm -hmm. um, and we see at that point that usually the benefits significantly outweigh the risk. Okay. So there are effective treatment options that are available for women who are experiencing really moderate to severe hot flashes. Hot flashes, yeah. that's the answer, mm -hmm. got it, thank yeah. you. Um, I have Stephanie, uh, what menopause concerns should women be aware of as they get older? Sure, so I, we mentioned osteoporosis, yeah. so thinking about bone health, that's a very important thing too as well. Sure. Uh, the other interesting thing we've seen is that when women um, are postmenopausal, and we again believe it's because of lower estrogen levels, that actually does at that point significantly increase their risk for cardiovascular disease. Wow. So being aware of that and being aware of your cardiovascular risk factors is a really important thing, especially at the time and when you're postmenopausal. Sure, sure, mm -hmm. great, thank you. Um, Melissa, um, everybody is always tired. How can I know what is normal and how do I know if it's a sleep disorder? Right, that's a really good question. Yeah, it could be fatigue, it could be thyroid. I mean, there's so many Absolutely. things, right? Absolutely. Um, and I, I guess I'm going to kind of probably put this in the context of perimenopause and postmenopause. Okay. Um, so I mentioned hot flashes. So that's the most common symptom that most women do experience during that time period. Um, I also want to acknowledge that a lot of women also experience a lot of sleep disturbance during the perimenopausal and postmenopausal time period and subsequently some fatigue associated with that mm. and some weight changes. Um, hormone therapy actually can be very helpful to improve sleep quality and there's often left um, fragmented sleep when they go on hormone therapy so that can sometimes help with the fatigue and the quality of life with the hot flashes. Okay. Um, and then we, we also do know that in terms of the weight gain, I, I often acknowledge that with patients who are going through menopause, that it's a very common reported um, symptom. Sure. Unfortunately, hormone 
therapy doesn't necessarily treat the weight gain issue, but at least mm. you can bring it up to your primary care physician, um, your primary care women's health physician, and then develop a little bit more of a strategy to approach the weight altogether. Mm. So, um, so those are common, very common symptoms that are reported. However, it's also very important for the physician to make sure that we're not missing something else. So right. back to the, the point of the, the, our viewer, um, we do want to make sure we're not missing something like thyroid disorder or anemia or maybe depression or something else. Okay, great. And then great. with the sleep disorders, that can get pretty complex too as well. We'd want to investigate that further and make sure we're not missing something like restless leg sim syndrome or yes. OS obstructive sleep apnea. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. Okay, excellent, thank you. Um, Lynn? As I've gotten older, I don't seem to sleep as much as I used to. Is that normal? So that, great question. So we actually do see that there are normal changes in our sleep cycle that are age-related. So mm -hmm. as we get older, we do see often that we require less sleep. Okay. Um, and the bottom line is if you are, you feel like you're getting less sleep, but as long as you're feeling rested and you're getting through your day and it's not impacting your activities during the day, that's really okay. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. Okay, um, I want to actually ask you about thyroid because mm -hmm. I know thyroid brings mm -hmm. on the symptoms of uh, being really tired and Absolutely. thyroid mm -hmm. disorder. Can you talk a little bit about the symptoms of that, what you should sure. check for, and it's something that we can check ourselves, or how does that work? Sure, uh, absolutely. Um, so uh, common symptoms of an underactive thyroid, and there are two ways that a thyroid can be off. It can be underactive or it can be overactive. Okay. And common symptoms of an underactive thyroid could be fatigue, mm -hmm could be constipation, could be noticing that you're losing more hair, could be brittle nails, could be dry skin, could be problems with cold intolerance. And in women who are still getting periods, it could be menstrual irregularities too as well. Mm -hmm. um, and you were pointing to your neck. Yeah. And, and yes, sometimes, not often, but sometimes women may actually notice too as well that there might be a change in the actual thyroid gland, which sits right here mm -hmm. um, at the base of the neck. And okay. some women might actually start to see that that's getting a little bit puffier or swollen or might feel something maybe pressing, pressing a little bit or maybe some difficulty with swallowing. So sometimes those could be symptoms or notable changes with an enlarged thyroid. So if you're experiencing any of these symptoms or constellation of these symptoms, you may want to talk to your doctor about that. Now you said those are the underactive. What is overactive? So overactive can be a different one too as well. Um, sometimes it can be overlap, but sure. generally speaking, overactive thyroid symptoms could be feeling more heat intolerance, so mm. sweating more easily, feeling often uh, more hot with normal activities, could be maybe some weight loss. Um, I forgot to mention with underactive thyroid, we see weight gain. Um, but sometimes oh, it can be the opposite with an overactive thyroid. So sometimes sure. I've actually seen women gain weight. Um, yeah. But usually we think about weight loss. Sometimes tremulousness, feeling a little bit more shaky. Again, menstrual irregularities can be a common issue with that too as well. Maybe feeling maybe more diarrhea. So those are more common symptoms. Okay. Um, and then Nancy has a question. Hello, I'm a patient with osteoarthritis um, who is also dealing with neurosarcoidosis and pulmonary sarcoidosis who went through menopause at 35 and have been on uh, prednisone since 2005, how often should I get a bone scan? So that is a really good question. This would be an example of somebody um, that we may need to be thinking about seeing a bone specialist. Okay. You've got two major risk factors there, um, premature, so pretty early menopause, um, and that would also, that's another area that we'd have to confirm that that's truly the reason why you're not sure. getting periods. Um, and then being on chronic steroid therapy. 
So I definitely think about you maybe being in the hands of a bone specialist so with those two significant risk factors. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, Jennifer, hello, can diabetes levels or blood sugar change after surgery? Uh, yes, I can, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, Shireen, can you test for menopause while on birth control pills? That's a really good question. Uh, so a very common treatment for perimenopause, mm -hmm. um, and I kind of step back, so when I say postmenopausal, what I mean is that you're 12 months without a period. Okay. So you know, we might see it's some changes, into, right, yeah. and so some of those natural changes that lead up to that, mm -hmm. you can see that periods start to space out, and often during the time that periods start to space out is when hot flashes are typically kicking in altogether. Sure. And to help women ease that transition, we may put them on a low-dose birth control pill. And we might put them on a low-dose birth control pill as long as they don't have contraindications in their later 40s, even through their early 50s, to kind of get them through what would be the typical age of menopause, which is around the age of 52. Sure. So how do we know if they're on a low-dose birth control pill that they're done with periods? Yeah. Um, so sometimes we can use clinical symptoms to help us out. So okay. they may say, well, I'm no longer getting a period when I'm supposed to during that placebo time period. I'm starting to get hot flashes during those sugar pills. So that could be a helpful indicator. Sure. Um, if we really need to know for certain, we're gonna have you um, we're going to typically have you seven days off of your active pills, maybe check a blood test, okay. and that could be helpful too as well. So we might be able to do it clinically. We might need a blood test once you're about seven days um, off of your birth control pill. Okay, and then a follow-up to Shireen's question. Is there a test for menopause? So it, it most often is a clinical diagnosis. As I said, the true definition is really 12 months without a period, right. typically are the symptoms of hot flashes that are part of that too as well. And then we would feel pretty comfortable making that diagnosis. Okay. Um, but for example, if somebody no longer has a uterus, we can't use the periods to tell us where they might be right. with that. Um, and we maybe really need to know, then we could do a blood test. Because I know like with the IUD birth control, mm -hmm. some people don't get anything, right. maybe even spotting, but some people don't get anything mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's also a perfect good one. Mm -hmm. But yeah. um, speaking of birth control, how do you know what is good for you without trying all of them? Because <laughs> right. I know I, I know there's one that you insert in your arm that my friends have. There's an right. IUD. There's right. the pills. What what do you recommend to patients, or how do you? Recommend it is it to a patients? very individualized approach, yeah. and that's um, and that's really an advantage uh, that we have so many different options nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, the clear advantage is that for women who maybe have medical conditions that may limit what they can use. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's nice nowadays, we often do have some options that we can even find something for them that'll be a best fit. If so, so if one doesn't work out, the, mm -hmm. the effects, you can always switch to different Absolutely, right. Okay. And I think, you know, traditionally most people think about a birth control pills really being the option. In the United States, it's probably the most relied on method of contraception when there are some you know some really some great options that are out there and not birth control pills sure. and are actually frankly more effective too as well right mm -hmm. okay great excellent and then i have patty is there anything you can do during pre-menopause to help prevent osteoporosis uh, so we do know that getting adequate calcium intake is really important for bone yes. health. Mm -hmm. um, and nowadays, I think our thought is, is that the best way to get enough calcium is through your diet because your body absorbs it best that way. Mm -hmm. Some women may not be able to and may have to take a supplement up to what they need. Okay. Um, we think also getting adequate amounts of vitamin D is important too as well. Um, so your doctor may recommend a supplementation. Um, getting weight-bearing exercise is really important too as well. Um, 
some, um, some women who um, may have menstrual irregularities or may be on medications that can be associated with bone loss may, be talk may have to talk to their doctor about how to minimize those risks too as well. Okay, excellent. And then Diane wants to know, can you explain what fibromyalgia is? So fibromyalgia um, is a type of condition um, that we do not, we cannot make a diagnosis with a blood test. Um, it is a pain condition. Um, we um, understand that um, individuals who are affected with fibromyalgia um, probably have often uh, sleep issues are a part of it. So mm -hmm. addressing sleep issues when you have fibromyalgia is a very important thing too as well. Um, it's probably a complex interplay with the neurological system and the musculoskeletal system as well. Mm -hmm. um, so when we're talking about managing some of the pain with fibromyalgia, um, sometimes we do use medications that sometimes we use in the neurology to world as well. Sure. Is this something like an inflammatory diet, anti-inflammatory diet? would work with, with that kind of? You know, I have had patients who have had a good response with anti-inflammatory diets for a lot of painful conditions, um, including fibromyalgia. Yes. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, and then I have Marcia. Um, with a history, DVT, are hormones allowed? Um, so with a history of DVT, which is a blood clot, um, yeah, you know, often we are avoiding a specific hormone combination, and it's a combination of estrogen and progesterone. Okay. Um, that could be thrombogenic, meaning that is something that could promote blood clot formation. Um, for some women, using progesterone alone without the estrogen may be an alternative, but you would have to talk to your doctor about that. Okay, mm -hmm. excellent. And uh, Morgan, my daughter is 12. At what age can I transition her to a primary care women's health specialist? So uh, that is really going to be, I think, based on the comfort level of your daughter, mm -hmm. comfort level of you yourself, um, discussion with her current healthcare provider. Okay. Um, so I think everyone's a little bit different in terms of when they make that transition. Um, if it's an internal medicine primary care women's health provider, they may say, well, I might be more comfortable taking them around the age of 16 or 17. Okay. If it's a family medicine physician, we see, again, we see uh, individuals of all ages, so we'd be happy to see that transition so when they're any ready. time that they're ready. Exactly, <laughs> they're ready, exactly. Right. Excellent. Um, and then Steph, um, can you be on birth control for too long? I've been on it for over 10 years. So that's a really good question. Um, one thing that we may not, that individuals may not hear enough about is are some of the non-contraceptive benefits of birth control pills. Okay. Um, so we do know that birth control pills can decrease risk of ovarian cancer and probably, and probably endometrial cancer. Um, so there is not too long of a time period that you really need to be on a birth control pill. Sure. And as I said, often women we're using them at older ages through 40s and early 50s compared to when we did a couple decades ago to really help women ease that transition through menopause. So we're often using them longer too as well. Now, is birth control used for endometriosis to keep it at bay? Is that correct? Yeah, it is. It is one of the first-line treatments for endometriosis. And there is no cure for endometriosis? Um, so endometriosis, um, so we do think about birth control pills. We do think about um, using other pain medications per se, and sometimes there are some surgical treatment options that are available. Okay, and then I'm gonna ask you one more question here. Um, now, I, I hear a lot of people that say, I've been on birth control for like 15, 16 years, I'm gonna have a hard time getting pregnant. Is that true? Oh, good question, no, it's not true. It's not true? No, no, Very it's not. Yeah, so usually, so you've been on a birth control pill, when you come off of it, your ovaries wake up. Um, the question is when they wake up. Usually they wake up within about a week or two. Mm -hmm. um, I hardly see it take too much longer. Maybe it'll take a little bit longer. 
um, but it's really not going to prevent your ovaries from waking up. Okay. Now mm -hmm. I'm just I'm just throwing out what I'm hearing from my friends. But is it bad to skip periods with birth control? Oh, another really good question. <laughs> so we're actually seeing more advantages with doing extended cycle regimens. Um, number one, uh, because you're taking away some sugar pill intervals, there's less opportunity for there to be an uh-oh wake up of the ovary and ovulation. Oh. So if we do a little bit of a longer extended cycle regimen, we're really more successfully suppressing ovulation. So I think it might be a little bit more effective when it comes to contraception. Mm -hmm. um, and for women who are headache sufferers, especially if they get headaches around the time of their periods, doing the extended cycle regimens could be a really great strategy to really minimize some of those headaches too as well. Okay. And, and keeping in mind the way that a birth control pill works, it keeps the lining of the uterus really thin, so you don't need to worry about how often you're getting the period. Sure. It's not harming the uterus. Okay, excellent. I have one more question okay. for you before I let you go. Um, Garza wants to know, why do some women go through menopause early? I was 32. Um, that's a really good question, and there are probably a lot of us as primary care physicians, um, if you do go through it at that pretty young age, meaning under the age of 40, we may need to refer you to a specialist to try to figure that out. Okay. Um, sometimes there can be autoimmune or genetic reasons why that's happening. Okay. So it is actually an important thing to not only recognize, but then also to figure out why that did happen. Sure. And sure. the other important thing too as well, um, we do know that individuals who do go through menopause at a really young age, as we've mentioned about estrogen-supporting bones, are mm -hmm. at a significant increased risk for osteoporosis and fragility fracture. Mm -hmm. And so we actually really do look, if appropriate, to try to keep them on some type of hormone, whether it be a low-dose birth control pill, through the age, the average age of, age of menopause, typically about the age of 52. Hmm. Protect the bones and to protect the heart too as well. Great, great. Okay, well, that's all the time that we have for today. Okay. Before I let you go, anything else you want to share with our audience that maybe we haven't touched on and we talked about a lot? I think we did talk about quite a bit. Um, so I think there are a lot of benefits to seeing a primary care women's health provider. Um, and we can actually help direct you in terms of your care. And if there are times where you need to see a specialist, whether it be a women's health specialist, a GYN specialist, or an obstetrician, or any other women's health subspecialist, we can help guide you through that. Excellent. Thank mm -hmm. you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And for more health tips and information, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at Cleveland Clinic One Word. Thank you. We'll see you next time. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.